Hello everybody and welcome to Recovery Machine. In our last news segment, we talked a bit about stressful workplace conditions and how it seemed like conditions are becoming more and more challenging each year. The type of situations that these healthcare workers are facing daily got us Mm -hmm. thinking about some of the circumstances over the years that we've both faced as healthcare professionals. In particular, the type of situations where you're going through your day and everything's going fairly standard, fairly routine, and then you, you have a situation that pops up and it shoots your stress level and your cortisol levels way up. Mm-hmm. And I can recall some of these situations where I, I had a, a thing, usually it was Friday. And if on Friday I had three of these types of customers come in, I could handle the first one. It was annoying. The second one was, you know, I had to use some coping skills and breathing techniques and stuff. And then if another one came soon after that, that which only happened maybe two or three times in my career, mm-hmm. but you reach a level where you are gassed out. There's no, your compassion, your empathy, your patience with people has been exhausted. And um, we were talking about this off the air and, and, kind of jokingly said, what if we did a segment about things that made us want to use drugs? And uh, thought that was kind of a, you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek or whatever, but it basically got us to thinking about uh, putting together a compilation of just a few, like a list of things that were, maybe they would be surprising to somebody who didn't work as a nurse or a pharmacist. So Mm -hmm. we've put together a list. uh, I think we've got... uh, about 10, do you something like that? I've, I think yep. I've got 10. So 10 each of uh, things that we've encountered. And maybe we'll just go back and forth. No particular order. We'll just read them out. And I think if you guys like this and you can relate to some of these stories, I think there may be, uh, I mean, a couple of them are pretty entertaining. Uh, some of them are, I don't know, not <laughs> entertaining, but frustrating. And if there's any stories that that you relate to or any stories that you might have that you would like to uh, to send to us, what we're going to do is probably run a contest. So I will uh, put together the contest details and maybe add that in a, in a section after this recording. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll let you guys know where to send your uh, stories and then maybe send us, you know, two or three of your, your best kind of workplace stories in healthcare. And we'll put them all together. Then we're going to do a contest and uh, probably the top three will, will win prizes, something like that. Yeah. So to give you an idea of um, what kind of stories we're looking for, we will begin. So things that made us want to do drugs in healthcare. What do you got, Corey? I was going to say before I began my list that, that so many of my stories are like, without, I don't want them to be all, um, just heavy. There's so many that were around like human tragedy and some devastating things that a, I want to uphold people's confidentiality and privacy, but also that are just like, it's just too much. And I kind of, in, in thinking about the list of things, I, 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 I did think of that, like, geez, I've, I've seen some devastating human experiences, but <laughs> I've also seen, you know, I've also been in positions 
kind of like what I imagine it's like, it's like at Surrey Memorial in that story we were just talking about where you're just stretched to the max. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, you know, one thing that comes to mind for me was arriving on shift and where you, there would typically be four or five people working together, nurses, not, not including a physician and being one of two that had arrived. So there's two people on shift and there's, let's say in a small site, 20 people in the waiting room. So in an emergency department, you need to triage people. You need to bring them in. You need to set them up so the doctor can see them. You need to initiate any treatment that they may require. And then they need to be discharged within you know a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And so that leaves two people to do all of that. And triaging alone is a one person job. Well, it's a more than a one person job, but the person who is triaging and you got a full waiting room, they can only really do that. Right. And the, so that leaves the other person to absolutely run <laughs> ragged. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I can think of a number of times where I had to, you know, be in charge and run myself ragged to keep up with the influx of people that were coming in the doctor's orders, moving people through, get, getting their treatment, getting them out the door. And I mean, it, like to the point where it is a physical workout. And a mental it, workout, I would and, imagine. And, and, and a, of course, and a mental workout, but like where you feel like you can literally feel the, the physical and mental tax occurring on you. Yeah. And, I mean, I was just thinking like, if you were in a restaurant and there are 20 tables that needed service and you're one server and see your other servers doing the triaging. So that's your host. Yeah. What, what, uh, you know, and you're trying to run around, keep track of everybody's, uh, orders and what they need and, and pay attention to who got what at what time. And you've got to, you know, you're trying to listen to a doctor and, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty wild. If the staffing was supposed to be like, you know, four or five, I think there's probably a mark they're aiming for there, like maybe mm-hmm. a nurse per five patients or something, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think what's important about that is like that was late in my career. So my response to the environment was already in place. Like I think I already felt a sense of like a, a sense of rumbling anxiety being there. So having to run around and, and, do a hundred things at once for way too many people that any human being can safely keep, keep track of my heart rate would have been up. My blood pressure would have been sky high. You know, it, I think that, that that physiological response to the, to the pressure and to the anxiety would already be way up here. Yeah. Just listening to that makes me want to do drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. And, and I mean, I, three quarters of my career was around, a really, really high volume of patients. I mean, that that's just a normal thing in an emergency mm-hmm. department. It's exactly what we've been talking about. It's a normal, it's just the standard that it's going to be that busy, but being that busy and then taking away three quarters of the staff is absurd. Yeah. Absurd. Wow. I, in hindsight, like on this one particular day that I'm, that I have in mind, the door should have been closed. It should have been diverted. Like there was no sense of safety. And right. if something had happened, it would have been on us. It would have been on myself, the one other nurse and the one doctor and our professional licenses. 
Yeah. So you go to the emergency department uh, thinking you're going to get help and uh, you get injured. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, crazy. Okay, what have you got? So I thought of a few. They're all community pharmacy related. The first one was uh, was one of these situations where it was a Friday. This was the third uh, difficult patient in a row. And the reason this one caused me to, uh, what happened here is I, I put down my workplace persona <laughs> because I was so baffled by this individual's behavior that I needed to talk to them as a human being, not just a human being, but I, I needed to address a situation as Nathan McLean, not the yeah. pharmacist, as in, I don't care what happens now. We're on even playing field, even ground. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know what's going on in your head. So a while ago, oh, it's probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, they came out with tablets or medication that cured, basically cured hep C. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And these medications were very expensive and they happened to be covered by the government, which was amazing. I mean, what a thing to to have, what a, a, a great thing to have as a, a part of your healthcare that this, first of all, that this medication comes available. So all of a sudden you've got, uh, if you're a hep C patient, you can get this under control. Fantastic news. On top of that, the government is willing to pay for this medication. It's a, uh, most of them are a 28 day, usually a 28 day course. So just a, it'd be about $30,000 for a, for a bottle of one of these the one we were using anyway. I haven't looked at them for a while, but they're probably both the same. And we had a guy come in and we'd explain to him that because the medication was very expensive, we had to make sure that the insurance was under control before we we even ordered the medication. Once we ordered it, we, we called the patient and told him that it was available. But because our software only allows us to put four digits in the price of a drug, we, and we can't bill the same drug the same day, we had to tell them that, and the, the insurance companies were working on figuring out a way around this, and so was a software team. But because the drug was new, we explained to him that we couldn't give him the whole 28 days in one shot. We would have to bill it in, in three increments. So mm -hmm. he could either you know wait until the billing cycle was complete and pick up all the medication to start, or if he wanted to start it right away, which is what I suggested he do, he could pick it up uh, in just like pick up the first, say, seven days, pick up the next seven days uh, or eight days, and then pick up the the last remaining uh, fill in, in three increments like that. So we'd explained all this to him and he comes in and he's decided that he wants to pick up all the medication right now because he's a, a truck driver and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want the inconvenience of having to come back and pick up the medication two more times, even though he lives in town, it's a small town. And uh, I proceeded to explain again, how, you know, what we'd already talked to him about. My tech had went over with, uh, with him about how there's no way for us to do that because that would be the equivalent of like, it's, it would be like saying, here's um, $20,000 worth of extra medication and we hope that the insurance goes through. 
like if the insurance doesn't go through, then how am I going to explain to the 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 owner of the store that I just gave out twenty thousand dollars, right? And, yeah, and you know he's accusing me of uh, like not giving a shit about him, about uh, you know how inconvenient it is for him to have to come back to the store twice, and just you know just being like just giving me a really hard time, and because you know maybe that doesn't sound like much, but uh, because I have a <laughs> I was late in the week and I'd had a couple of rough patients in front of him. I just, I, the first thing I did is I stopped and I got a, I put in a tech and I said, I need a breather from this guy. And then I thought about it and I was like, you know what? No, I, I gotta, this is one where I gotta go back and figure out what's going on. And so I went back and I, I said, look, man, like, do you understand how entitled you look to me right now? Do you understand how, how preposterous your request is in light of what, what you're getting here. You live in a country where some team of scientists have just come up with a, a miracle drug to cure you of a condition that as far as you knew you were going to have for the rest of your life was probably going to shorten your life. That alone should be enough for you to be jumping up and down with joy. Like if I was in your shoes, I'd be how do I get this medication? You know, when, when is it available? What do I have to pay? Oh, it's $30,000. Ah, it's expensive. Well, to hell with it. I got to fucking have this stuff, right? Oh, wait, it's covered. It's covered by our government. The taxpayer is going to collectively get together and help you. You don't have to pay anything for this drug. We're giving it to you. All you have to do is pick it up in three increments. That's it. Yeah. Your hep C is cured. Now, what is your problem with that? You know, and the guy went ballistic and uh, challenged me to a fight in the parking lot. And uh, I was like, you know, he's a older dude, 50, not in great shape. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is when I get off. I got no issues with that. What I do on my own time is my own time. If you think this is a big enough deal that you want to physically fight me, uh, you will, like, this is not going to go well for you, but if, if this is what you, you, you think is the best course of action, I, I'm, you know, I got the, the black truck in the back parking lot there at six o'clock is when I'm done. Oh, that's where I'll be. And, you know, I've never seen the guy, but that's, you didn't. Uh, no, I didn't see the okay. guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, because that would have been, uh, yeah, I don't know how that would have went uh, for my career, but, uh, yeah, just um, what do you call that? Entitlement, I guess. And uh, we see a lot of that. Yeah, and you know that it it fits really perfectly with the next one I'm, I'm about to 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 talk about. But like those are really damaging to the human spirit. Like when when your desire to help a human being is met with with aggression and hostility and personal blame, mm -hmm. it's really it can be really really soul crushing. It is soul crushing because you think my initial thought was, oh my God, this guy's going to be so thrilled. Like, I mean, wouldn't you be happy that you're, if I had something like hep C that was beating up my liver and I thought I was going to have it for the rest of my life. And all of a sudden now I've got something that could like cure it in a month. Yeah. I would be very pleased. Yeah. You know, but it's, you know, and I don't know what that guy was going through. And, you know, looking back, I obviously I handled the situation poorly, 
but uh well you ha- it sounds like you handled it like someone who the system was already taking a toll oh on yeah <laughs> you know yeah. like I that's was, what i hear i, I, was when, I hear, down. Yeah. <laughs> when i hear you <laughs> describe yourself in that moment too that's someone who's the effect of the system is already well established <laughs> yeah yeah and, you know i so the the example that i have for myself is kind of i don't think that this was i don't think that the the toll of the system was as well established on me in this stage yet but i recall an incident when i was working in a in a large emergency department and there was this infamous hallway where any overflow patient went and unfortunately the hallway was so big that you could get like 20 people 20 patients in it, maybe 25, even on a really, really busy day. And it would get to a point where stretchers would be six inches apart on either side and lined up in a row. And and then you'd have a line of chairs for ambulatory patients, the chairs pressed up against each other against the wall. And then each person, because, you know, there were a lot of people that were vulnerable or elderly or whatever, where they would need a family member to be with them. So you would have 20, 25 patients. And in some cases, Uh, a dozen family members in there with their, with their loved one. And these were people who with, in some cases with acute illness, but there was just literally nowhere else to go. And being the nurse in charge of a department like that, where it's over capacity by 40 people say, you know, so there'd be a hundred, maybe 125 people in the whole department, 130 people in the whole department. And, and the buck stops at you. And I recall one incident where there was an angry family member and, and I I had an office that I would barely be in, but I would do my, my um, report at the end of the shift kind of a thing and write up the report for the next shift coming on and do any paperwork that I had to do. And, and there was an angry family member of a, of a patient and he had come at a nurse, a female nurse and was very angry with her. And I need to talk to someone right now. And this was like right at the end of the shift. So maybe six 45 and, uh, she, at no fault of her own, said, well, if you want to talk to someone, he's right in there in that office. And so this is an office with no egress, with no way to get out of there mm-hmm. if someone's standing in the doorway. And this very large older man came came into the doorway and had me cornered in there and absolutely tore a strip off me for the state of the department and mm-hmm. and how dare you and what the hell are you doing about it? You're doing nothing. You've, you don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. And that kind of pointed accusatory language. And what I should have told him was to get the hell out of there and to back off and, and should have gotten security to drag him out of there, but was so, and I think I did eventually escalate it to uh, someone else in the hospital. But I re- what, what I recall is like, I lived 20, 20, 25 minutes from the hospital. And I, by the time I got home, that had been, you know, a good 45 minutes say after that incident and my heart rate was still elevated. I was still in this like totally anxious, furious, hyper aware, uh, excitable state. Mm-hmm. Like cortisol would have been through the roof. Like to have someone cornering you, yelling at you, accusing you of doing harm when you've just spent 12 hours of trying to do your best to help your fellow human. And you know full well the state of affairs. Yeah. It's, it's and, not like it's a surprise to you that you're, you know, you know that you, you you don't have access to the resources. There's nothing you can do about it. 
You're just trying yeah. to do your best with what you have. And this guy's taking the whole situation out on you. Yeah. And, and again, so that wasn't, that didn't at the time that didn't make me want to use drugs as we were saying, but it was really crushing to my spirit. Cause I, it was one that became one of many incidents that I could recall where I felt, Oh, like you said, entitlement felt hostility and a threat, a physical threat to my well-being and my safety because of someone else's attitude and experience mm. and no one in a workplace or no one should have to experience that. But someone who's working in a, in a field of trying to help other people should really not have to experience that. Yeah. Violence in the workplace has, has come to the surface more since that incident occurred with me, but, and I can think of many other incidents of violence and a couple that I'll highlight today, but there's a really human toll on that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And again, timing being a bit of a factor there where it's at the end of your shift, you're out of fuel, you know, it, Exactly. And, and, you know, I think in hindsight, when what, learning what I have learned now, like my body's physiological reaction to that and how elevated I was throughout my whole body, that was really harmful. And like, yeah. I should have, I should have called in the next day. Yeah. I, I went right back seven o'clock the next morning. I, I remember that, but I should have said tell with it and just yeah. been kind to myself and restore it. Yeah. Don't no tools and lack of awareness. Eh? Yep. Yeah. My next one is a, another entitlement one, but it was uh, very early in my career before I, like you come out of school and you think, Oh yeah, I'm going to help some people. This is going to be uh, pretty good. And, and it takes about, I don't know, a month or two and you're, you go into sort of like a state of shock because yep. you realize that how much different the job is from what you <laughs> were told it was in school. But I just, I, this was one that uh, I didn't have a reaction to other than I was just stunned. And I mm -hmm. was too, it was too early in my career to even understand what, but anybody who works in a pharmacy will recognize uh, the, the way people describe their, they think of like this, this gentleman came in and he was, I think three or four days early to refill his diabetes medication. So he's got, uh, you know, severe, I wouldn't say late stage, but heading in a bad direction, diabetes, his numbers in the morning were like 18, 19, 20 type, uh, blood glucose. So way out of control. Uh, his A1C was terrible and, uh, he looked rough, wasn't taking care of himself. and was relying mainly on the, the medications to help mitigate the progression of this disease. So he comes in to pick up his medication and there's a charge on, on his metformin and it's a, a $20, you know, it's not very expensive, but it's $20. And I don't know what this guy's uh, economic situation was, but the response is, oh, I don't pay for my meds. And anyone who's worked in pharmacy will, will have heard that I don't pay for my meds many, many times. And it's an interesting statement because it says a lot about the individual, I think, where it's, I am special. I am covered for my medication. I don't pay for my meds. Mm -hmm. Those are my meds already back there. So you can just give them to me and I don't right. pay for them. That's the uh, general kind of attitude. So when I explained that 
you know, he was a little bit too early. In other words, he went through his medication that the doctor prescribed. So he, he, he either went through them a little bit fast or he must've had a couple left in a, in a jar at home or something. Uh, if he just finished those up and came back and got the rest, he would then be covered and everything would be okay. Nope, I don't have any left and I'm not paying for my medication. So you can just keep them and walks away. And in my mind, I'd, I'd been, you know, this is when it was early. I was like, man, it's only 20 bucks. Like, man, you, your blood glucose is like way high. Like I was going to tell him I'll pay if you want, like <laughs> I'll, I'll buy them for you. Just yeah. take them, man. Like I'm thinking, you know, first things that's your, your dick and your eyes. That's what, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Right. Those yeah. are the first two things that are going to go. And you're going to, you're going to sacrifice that <laughs> your vision and your penis for $20. I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was, it, it was an interesting kind of like, look an early look at how people, their level of responsibility for their own care. You know, even as an adult, this person didn't, didn't want to do anything. Didn't want to take any responsibility for the illness in the way of exercise or eating better or anything like that wanted the drugs and would not even like whether, whether he had drugs at home, they hadn't used yet or whether he went through them too fast. I don't know, but would not pay an extra $20 at that time to take a medication that, you know, would have immediate benefit. I just, mm -hmm. I, I, that was a real eye opener, like an early mm -hmm. eye opener for me. These are sort of like, I mean, one of the themes already that we're drawing on are some of the flaws of, or some of the, products byproducts of our strained public system yes aren't they yeah yeah there's problems and uh i think there's solutions to those problems but that would be another show <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah totally you know so the next one that comes to mind for me just on the on the theme about about violence whether it's verbal and emotional violence or or physical violence and I can think of many examples, many, too many examples of physical violence in the emergency departments. And anyone who works in the ER for a number of years knows that, that it's a violent place. But I recall one incident where, you know, at three or four in the morning, in a again, in a large facility, there was a commotion and a, you know, a call for help kind of a thing. And an individual was picking up, picking up a large recliner chair. And now these recliner chairs for anyone who, <laughs> who knows are ones on wheels. They're, you know, about four feet high at the back and about three feet wide and probably weigh, I mean, they must weigh over a hundred pounds <laughs> and an individual was attempting to pick it up, to throw it at staff. <laughs> and I mean, if you can imagine, and I've, I've seen incidents where things get thrown and where someone will throw a, a tray, a, a food tray or, yeah. throw something like that but <laughs> any individual who ha has the capacity and ability to be able to pick up a a large recliner chair to throw it at the staff and he was gonna crush you guys i mean that's really really just or or a pa another patient right like the, yeah. the the possible the terrible possibilities were endless there so myself and security tackled this individual to get him away from being able to pick up a chair mm-hmm and again, I, the amount of times so we've talked about this in some of our discussions about mental health, where 
someone comes to the ER who is having an acute experience of, of a mental health condition or withdrawal or something like that. And they end up like tackled and strapped to a bed. And that's like the only, or at least the most, most drawn on solution that healthcare has at this point when they are short staffed and when they have other people to consider and stuff that, that it ends in, it ends in in a moment of violence and tackling a person and strapping them to a bed. Mm -hmm. And if you are a, a male staff member or a male staff member of any size, it ends up being you who's doing it with security. Yeah. And, and I look, but we chuckle at that. Cause I mean, the image is, is ridiculous of someone picking up a reclining chair, mm-hmm. but like, what a, what a, what a shitty outcome. Like this guy probably did need help. I don't remember what this, what the story was with him, but the threat like the feeling of, of a physical threat, feeling heightened and escalated from that. And then you've just had to physically intervene on someone when, I, when I'm not a, a fighter mm-hmm. and the risk of injury and like strain and then, okay, back to the shift and right. oh, I've still got five hours to go. <laughs> right. And then you, and you, you have to, and that's a, that's a common thing that I experienced was like trying to come down from uh, like this moment of elevated adrenaline and cortisol trying to bring yourself down when there's no it's it's never hey Corey, go take half an hour and and relax Uh, maybe if you're lucky then you're you're working and there's enough staff to permit that but most times it was just like nope keep going yeah (laughs) keep going that's wild and you wonder with patients who have reached that level of frustration where they're they're having a freak out like that if there was adequate resources, I wonder how many of those situations could have been stopped before they started, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I know that in the facility that I'm speaking of, they've since now, now since built a, a dedicated mental health section. Mm. So at the time there was not a dedicated mental health section. So you had people with coming in with mental health concerns or substance use concerns that were in a kind of like a general population of people right next to a, elderly lady with a UTI or a person with a cardiac issue or something like that. So (laughs) there was just no, no barrier there, no ability to to kind of like contain the situation either or to, to, or to get out of it. It was just like all one dangerous melting pot. Right. So you come in there having a panic attack and then uh, next thing you know, you got a guy dropping a reclining chair on your head. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you, if you were in a state of like, psychosis or acute anxiety and oh my god being in an er where there's a lot of people and loud alarms mm-hmm. and loud everything it's just not therapeutic in the least no quite the opposite yeah <laughs> my next one is not one that it made me laugh more than anything but uh it's just a it was a funny thing that I wish there was somebody else on shift with me when it happened because it was, it was just me and I was working in a, a small pharmacy. And, uh, I think it was just standing there behind the counter, putting together a script or something. And there was uh, two or three well-experienced ladies, uh, maybe in their eighties, I guess, standing out uh, at the vitamin section there. And I always kind of, as a pharmacist, you keep your ears open because Lots of times you're going to get a question and it helps if you, if you're listening, you already know what they're going to ask and you've already got an answer ready. You know how it works. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they get to talking about, they're looking for vitamin D. So they're talking about all the the different 
benefits of vitamin D. And I was just kind of standing there and, and listened to them, their discourse. And the one was uh, like, I love D. If I don't take it, I get depressed. And the other one pipes it up. You must take D every day. And I'm kind of like, uh, you know, sort of chuckling to myself a little bit. And they're all talking about the, like the different types of D. They just keep calling it D. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they're talking about the different types of D they've tried over the years and stuff. And I'm like, I'm looking around and there's nobody there. to I'm like, <laughs> should I record this conversation? Like, this is awesome, right? <laughs> and uh, then the one lady picks up, like we had the, the value packs of them or whatever, like the 500 pack. And she's like, Oh, look at this big one, you know, and they're all, oh, they proceeded. It was probably like a, a 10 minute conversation about, uh, you know, just various iterations of how, their appreciation <laughs> for D. And I just, yeah. I was like, come on, man. This, this is a day when I'm standing here by myself. I don't even have a tech, nobody to, nobody to verify this hilariously <laughs> awesome conversation. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then they, one of them asked, uh, would you say something like, can you, we got some questions about your D or something. Cause they always say that it's like the vitamins <laughs> are like mine. Cause I'm the pharmacist. Right? Yes. And I like, it, it got to the point where it's very, you know, I'm trying cause they don't know what the fuck they're saying. Right. But it's, tr I'm trying to keep a straight face or maybe they did know. And they were just like outrightly, Hey, let's go fuck with this pharmacist. I don't yeah. know. But yeah, I was, that was a real test of uh, my professional visage you know i had to like <laughs> keep it together while i'm explaining this stuff to him but yeah i i just thought that was a a, a kind of a funny one to throw in Where it sounds like saturday night live wrote that yeah it's like come <laughs> on man and then they just they were relentless like on and on it went <laughs> and then it discourse on how much they love d <laughs> well the next one for that comes to mind for me is Unex I'll, I'll title it kind of unexpected outcomes. And when you've done the job, and I, I would imagine it's very much the same for in pharmacy too, that when you've done the job or when you know a drug or know a course of a treatment, it, it becomes very expected and you can kind of bank on it turning out a certain way. And in the ER, doing an acute intervention on someone or doing you know, giving, offering a treatment, you, you feel confident in that and you develop a confidence in what you're giving in the drugs that you're giving to people. And, um, I can think of one incident where in the case of someone who had had a stroke and as a young nurse, I was fairly new out of my ER specialty and gave this drug that can reverse the symptoms of an ischemic stroke. Um, but it can also dislodge any kind of a clot and move the clot along. Mm -hmm. So in theory, it could actually make things better briefly and then worse, but I'd given it before and, and it had made things better. And you can sometimes see quite miraculous outcomes, mm -hmm. um, where someone will have symptoms of an ischemic stroke and you give the drug and, and you know, they develop, they can move their limb again or their facial droop goes away. And that was what I had done. I'd given this drug and there was a brief, maybe three to five minutes where the person was starting to starting to, I think, move, move both limbs a little bit. And it was, their family was there witnessing this. And then obviously it had dislodged a clot and, and their symptoms became like devastating. And I was, you know, maybe 25 years old and new to fairly new to the ER and new to that specialty. And it was just 
it was devastating because well, everything I'd learned was that it would have this outcome and it was, I had given the drug and it was having that outcome. And then, oh my God, like mm-hmm. devastating and seeing that there could be a, a adverse effect from something that I had delivered to someone mm-hmm. and that with the support of a doctor and there was a whole team there and, and that person ended up actually recovering and doing okay. But I, what I remember so vividly was that feeling of like, oh, I, I was a part of doing something that actually made things worse. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. I think that's, well, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't understand about medicine in general, but even as, as practitioners, it's always risk versus benefit. And there's no such thing as a magic bullet drug. Yeah. It's just, you know, and you want things to work out for the best. And most of the time it does do what it's supposed to do, Yeah, but there's always that lingering chance and it's going to happen every once yeah. in a while, you're going to get one of those. And it's unfortunate that that happened, especially when you're like uh, in your twenties like that, that must've been, I don't know. How did you, like, you must've thought about that for days. I bet. I did I like days, days. And and then, you know, I, I, I think there was a circumstance where we were able to kind of keep track of that individual or hear an update. And, and I, you know, finally started to hear that he was walking and recovering and stuff. And that made me feel a little bit better, but those are things that get internalized by the person and the healthcare system, again, kind of assumes because of like that ego and like that style of like, oh, just, you can grin and bear it. You can grin and bear it anything because you're a healthcare professional uh, and you work in an ER. So you're really tough, but it's like, I was devastated because it, it just felt like I felt responsible and it was not an error. It was not an error in, in the dosage. It was no error at all, but it was one of the risks that was associated with the drug that the person and their family knew, mm-hmm. but it just like, oh, damn it. Yeah. It, it happened and it, and I carried that. You're following and in hindsight, protocol. Yeah. I think in hindsight, like that, that would be one where I probably should have not, not even necessarily gone into a therapist, but talked to someone within the team or said to like my manager or a doctor, hey, I need to just sit and talk about this for 20 minutes and just like unload this and help me help me internalize the fact that this was not my fault. Mm-hmm. And I and I think about that probably there, there are incidences that, that happen like that, you know, almost daily across our province or across our country. And and that there are there are humans on each side of that, on the family and patient side, but also on the healthcare side that are impacted by that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I knew that it was impacting me and I, I remember I had talked to my family about it a bit, but I wish I had have done more to unload that and not carry it. Yeah. But you don't even, yeah. I mean, in your twenties, you don't even think about stuff like that, you know? No. And then, and then you're so busy and work is so busy that you just keep going. And then you get thinking about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But that moment, if you pay attention to your thoughts, which I've, since learned to do that moment is actually lingering there. Mm-hmm. And like how many times a day was I thinking about that patient? It was more than I, I think I more than I was cognizant of. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. once enough of those things kind of, once you have enough of those stockpiled, then the queue gets pretty long, right? That's right. Yeah. The next one I have was a, an example of the disparity between how, the average healthcare professional is treated as far as, you know, like what happened to me and you 
with the college and uh, it's not a fun procedure to go through and everyone's going to deal with it their own way. But there's, you know, regardless of what anyone says, there's a punitive type style that's uh, or angle or aspect to it that's involved. I don't think anyone mm-hmm. could deny, deny that. So, and if you go on any, any healthcare professional college's website, they'll usually have a, a disciplinary committee with active cases that they're looking at. And some of which based on the level of their, you know, if it's a really flagrant case, they'll, they'll be listed publicly, usually even with the person's name, if it's bad enough. Right. Oh yes. Yeah. So when I, I was working for a pharmacy owner and the pharmacy owner was, uh, you know, there's different levels of risk and uh, kind of different things that different owners are willing to do to make money uh, and to uh, make their business more successful. And uh, I've seen, you know, people who follow the letter of the law all the way up to people who are grossly abusing the system. And I didn't know, I I knew this individual was up to some kind of, was definitely pushing it, but uh, I later found out that they were, they had got caught. They'd been doing this. uh, The the owner was, had figured out a a scam with the, one of the um, hospital pharmacists at a nearby hospital and was basically getting the hospital pharmacist to order up generic drugs that they had on their formulary. And then the community pharmacist owner would go in and purchase those drugs cash at a greatly reduced price and give the cash to the pharmacy manager in the hospital who would then just increase their budget, right? So each year they would keep increasing the budget. And I think they got away with this for many, many years. Might've been even 20 years they were doing this. So the hospital pharmacy manager was just getting a bag of cash, right? Uh, because those are those are drugs that he doesn't pay for, obviously. That's hospital formulary drugs that the taxpayer pays for. Mm-hmm. And then the community pharmacy owner was taking those, purchasing those drugs at a greatly reduced price and then using them for their pharmacy operations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. instead of like, a, a, I mean to explain how advantageous that would be, it, it would be, you know, instead of getting like a, say 18% margin on a, a regular prescription, now you're getting like a 50% margin, you know? Yeah. So the, and, and when you're in a high volume store and, or have multiple stores and you're able to source, you know, basically next, your drugs is for next to nothing. Uh, obviously you do very well. So, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions about how they want to, uh, how they want to run their business. But what shocked me was when this individual was caught because, because of their wealth and because of their ability to hire uh, a certain level of lawyer or team of lawyers, they never had their name once mentioned, not by the college, not by the news. Uh, there was a small article in the local paper that actually mentioned the, uh, I believe they mentioned the hospital manager, his name got mentioned, but the, the owner never, it, it never came wow. to light. Yeah. And I wouldn't even have known about it unless uh, like I pay attention to these type of things and had somebody bring it to my attention. And to this day, I don't think like, I don't think any of the people who work for him or, you know, 
and he it didn't miss a beat didn't affect his business doing just as well as ever i mean i just it, it, it's it's interesting that uh that the college has this way of presenting a front that's all cases are treated with dignity respect and equality blah 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 unless you have money then yeah it's a, exactly. it's a whole different thing and i've seen that with I mean, I've seen that with Obsidian clients too. Once a client has a certain level of money and they're able to afford, there's lawyers on the lower mainland that specialize in protecting healthcare professionals. And if you can afford those lawyers, the difference it makes in your outcome with the college is mind. It just, you, you can't believe that it's the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, interesting, frustrating. It must've generated some cynicism in you even more or cynicism. some di- di- <laughs> <laughs> or di- like further disillusionment yeah i mean i just thought that that was particularly egregious like it is for sure hello recovery machine listeners as promised we'd like to hear your stories about workplace situations that pushed you to the limit Write them down, record some audio, or share a video with us. We'll put it together in a segment for the show, and the top three will win some cash. Coworker driving you crazy? Customer or patient making you think you're going to show up on the evening news? Tell us what happened, and you could win some money. So email us at us at recoverymachine.org us at recoverymachine.org that's us at recoverymachine.org is our email so send those to us or share your files with us and yeah we'll see who's got some stories thanks everybody and thanks for listening